0: Oh, we say good morning again, and uh, small but mighty this morning, right? Mighty in the Lord. Uh, Recently I heard a story about a a man who was an interim pastor of a church, and uh, he hadn't been at the church that long, but it's amazing. Interim pastors can see things and have more insight into uh, the church than the the members and even the pastor. And uh, so anyway... Uh, we realize also they have more freedom to do things uh, in that they're not going to be there uh, forever. And um, so they can see the problems and they can let it be known. Well, one day this interim uh, pastor on a Sunday um, had some freedom. Um, Before church, he actually didn't shave. He didn't comb his hair. uh, He didn't brush his teeth. Um, he went out in the garage and looked at the rag bin, and he found some really bad clothes. He had painted in, and they were just all just terribly dirty and just stained all over. They wore they were worn. They were they were smelly. And uh, anyway, he uh, went and got a shopping cart, borrowed that. He didn't steal it, but he, he borrowed it. And uh, he went to a store and actually bought a, a bottle of beer and, and uh, a, uh, as he took the shopping cart, he went along and took cardboard and put in it and some aluminum cans and all sorts of junk, you know, and just stashed it in this uh, this cart. And then he poured the beer over his clothes and you can imagine what he smelled like. And about five minutes before church, he came up to the front door and, and he stopped there with his cart and started just kind of digging through there and kind of looking in there and even putting his head in there just to, to see what was there. And uh, then he proceeded to open the doors of the church and uh, actually walked in, and he sat down quietly on the back row uh, with all the smell and, and everything. And people saw that he came in, and, but nobody recognized who he was as he sat down at the back of the church, Sitting on that back row, he's not really doing anything, but uh, he is uh, disturbing people for some reason as he just sits there. So, an usher got up, told the man that he would have to leave. So, he got up, he walked right out the front door, and walked around the side of the building and into his private office door. And then, uh, when it came time to preach the message, he walked out of his office and went right into the sanctuary. And uh, he went right behind the pulpit of where he always went on Sundays. He was still dressed in the clothes of the homeless man. And then he preached on the passage that we are about to do today in James chapter (laughs) 2. So if you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I I guess a question that we would want to ask ourselves as we put this into application, even before we read the passage, is are we spiritual snobs? (laughs) Who outside of our present circle of friends have we attempted to include in our lives recently? And that's a good question uh, to ask. Anyway, we we start a new chapter this week, chapter 2, and James was not conscious of new chapters. He was not conscious (laughs) of there being chapters in in the letter that he wrote. And there were no chapter divisions, and and, uh, we know that... Uh, those things are good. They are good for us. They help us. It wasn't so around the 1500s that those came, but it was uh, helpful for reading. But not always does it stay fair with the context. It seems like, okay, now this is something new, right? As we get into chapter 2, this is something totally different. Uh, but there is no interruption between chapter 1 right on into chapter 2. It's really carrying on the same thought. He was talking about um, true religion. That's what we talked about last week, right? Uh, there's an outward expression of living faith. That, that is what true religion is. Now, there is a religion that was an outward expression that is really not of a living faith. It's just outwardly expressing something. But true religion, he said, visits orphans and widows. So he put it into application going to people who are in need, really. when we say orphans and widows can mean those specifically, but also it can mean um, um, in general. Uh, people who are in the need. And so now he's going to continue that thought about not showing favoritism to the people that we feel most comfortable with and then ignoring the people we don't feel comfortable with or ignoring the people who are poor. Now, we know that there is to be compassion to the poor. We know that. We, we know that in, in, our, in our thinking. But sometimes we forget uh, there are certain people maybe... Uh, like the bum that we just described, that we can just shelve them off and then put them outside. But there is to be no favoritism, uh, at least of any kind, by the Christian. Uh, The reason the Christian is to show no favoritism because it is the attribute of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of attributes, what do you think of? His righteousness, His justice. His holiness, His sovereignty. Remember all those ones that we read in that passage and then we've been singing in all the songs? A lot of those are attributes. You know, His great faithfulness. and So all of those things, His omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, right? His immutability, His grace, His mercy, His love. How about no favoritism? Have you ever thought of that as an attribute? usually won't see it in books that are written about the attributes of God, the character, the nature of God. It usually won't put no partiality, but actually it is. This is a characteristic of who God is. Um, Let's take, for instance, God does not look at people and bring them up in His own thoughts because of their great looks, right? Because of their money, because of their possessions, because of their race, their color, their creed, their language. He doesn't lift anybody up because of those particular things. How about the family background, education, all of those things that, uh, you know, some some of them can be uh, rather good, but to God, you know, really, they don't mean anything. And I am so thankful that be the case. Um, And so, you know, aren't you glad he doesn't look at our looks? And he says, "I'm going to choose him because I think he is pretty nice looking. I'm going to bring him into the kingdom of heaven. You know, if that were be the case, we might all be out uh, outside, you know, looking in. But uh, really, those kind of things they don't mean anything to him uh, as far as salvation is concerned. We um, know that we are to use wise discernment, but sometimes we discern too much, and because of our old flesh." Our old flesh desires to do things that really what the new nature is all about, it doesn't recognize. It wants to keep doing and thinking the same way that it it did. And so when it comes to treating other people, we might still, even though we know better, we might still treat a person uh, maybe with uh, not any kind of respect. Or we might have too much respect for people who we really shouldn't bypassing the people who should. So there's a danger of treating people in different ways based on their outward appearance, right? That's kind of the idea. But the thing is, our whole life is to be like Christ, right? We are to glorify Him, and the way to glorify Him is that when we are like Christ. Everything we do is to be based upon Christ, isn't it? And so when when we see that, we recognize, wow, that's a tall order. Because when I really see what this is really saying, it's talking about orphans, widows, it's talking about the poor versus the rich here and everything. It's kind of challenging. You know, it, it hits right at the gut when we really take this to what it means. And it, it goes much further than what we think. Remember, the Word of God is the mirror, right? And it reflects the things in our lives that need to be changed we come off of that passage that we did a couple of weeks ago about the mirror. And so it continues. You know, are we uh, treating people uh, the same? Uh, whether it be the poor and the rich or, or what have you. We know that we really don't because we fall short of the glory of God. Right? So how can we be more like Him? How can we be like Christ? Well, this attribute here is another one that's going to form us into the image of Christ. It's the attribute of God, and as we look at Him, and that's what this is all about, we look at Him, we we look at ourselves, we we look at the uh, the mirror, we, we look at Christ, right? As we look at Him, it should behoove us to desire to have this prominent in our lives that we would not favor one over another because of the outward uh, appearance that they have God is great and mighty and awesome Moses says I think he says there is um, in Deuteronomy ten seventeen for the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of law, a lords a great God a mighty and awesome God we identify with that right and then it says who regards not persons he gets all the glory he doesn't lift anybody up more than what they really are, right? He's the one. It's all about him. So God has no respect to persons. 2nd Chronicles 19:7 says there is no iniquity, no sin with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons. To take the appearance of somebody or somebody because of their stature in the community or because of their wealth and we, li- we can lift them up and favor them over somebody else and he says God doesn't do that um, God has no respect of person. that sets him far above us doesn't it he is so far so holy and holy is so awesome that it's the otherness of God he goes far outside anything that we can understand and so the otherness of God extends to where we can't even imagine But he's a God that comes to earth and identifies with us. And we can identify with him. We can understand who he is. So this holy God says, be ye holy for I am holy. And so partiality is another uh, sin that God attacks through his word. And James just delivers one after another every week. Have you noticed that? We're taking a beating as we look at the book of James.
1: But that's good.
0: It's all good, isn't it? Because it's conforming us to the way that He thinks. Uh, God has no partiality. Anyone in any nation who fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. So as we look at God, we look at ourselves. That's the two things we look at. Then we're actually looking at the Word so we can be conformed to Christ. Why don't we all stand? Let's turn to this letter that James wrote. And we're doing the first seven verses here today, I do believe, is what we have scheduled. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in poor man who in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That's right. Father, thank you for your word. Help us. Help us. We are needy people. We come with our hands open. Desiring for your word to work through us. We want our hearts opened so that we can truly see more meaning in this passage than we've ever had before, and that it would come alive to us, in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, James gets right to the point. I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush, does he? he, he and what he what he says here, okay, here, here it is. He, he mentions Christ, and, and uh, he says, don't have an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he draws out an illustration. Something that they would identify. Something that probably happened in their assemblies. Okay, well, let's start with this. What's the first one we're looking at? Partiality usurps God's sovereignty. Our sovereign God, we sing, right? Our sovereign Lord and God. Um, When we show partiality, we're really usurping the authority of the sovereignty of God. You say, boy, that's rather stretching it out a little bit, isn't it? When we... You know, partiality isn't that big of a sin, is it? Well, he he's going to show us here. He's, he gives a description, first of all, of believers. First of all, look at yourselves in light of the Word, and then look at Christ. And that's how he starts right here in the first verse. He says, my brethren. And he gives a description of believers. They are brethren. And, you know, in this epistle, he has done that throughout, and he will continue. He will address them as Brethren you're one of uh you're one of us, I'm one of you. You know, we're all part of this this family of God. That's the key there. He can be a little tough on the readers, can't he? James uh really uh hits the point, but he does it with gentleness. He does it with a uh, tenderness, and he calls them fellow brethren. And when you see fellow brethren, you have to think of brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all in the same family. We all came from now who is our Father, and we have our brother, Jesus Christ, and we are brothers and sisters. We are now related. Isn't that incredible to think about? Whatever our backgrounds, whoever our families we came from, and those are important. It's it's a it's an amazing thing what God does there, but there's something even more important. It's the family of God. Of course, when you come from a family who are already brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are in the family of God, it makes it even more joyous, doesn't it? But the the whole key is we are in the family as brethren. Then he focuses on this. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, we would tend to skip over that. But when we do verse by verse, it makes us hit on every point. And we're going to come back with do not hold your faith in our, but we're going to now look at our Lord Jesus Christ. We've first seen ourselves, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? We're not glorified yet. But we know one who is glorious, and it's Jesus Christ, focus on Him. Because that's the only way that we can do these things that He commands. Any time that we are commanded to do something, it is qualified by the fact of who Christ is. So we don't do things on our own. We can't do it. We depend upon His grace. And look how great this God is. It's a Lord Jesus Christ who is glorious. That's a description of Christ. We saw a description of us. Now here is a grand description of Jesus, I do believe. And uh, we've been grounded to to see this and to be able to do these things because of this. The word uh, glorious is dealing with doxa. Of course, you've heard of doxology. It's dealing with the glory of God. It's the glory of God that is revealed. Uh, The best way that he revealed his glory is in the person of Christ. That's how we see it. It's the very divine presence of God. Nobody's really seen the full glory of God with their eyes. Moses saw the backside of God's glory. And uh, we know the amount of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus there. Uh, But it means the very outraying of God. Whatever that is, it is awesome. We've seen the glory of God just through the word of God. And how he's worked in our lives. And we see the glory of God in creation. What a beautiful day it is. Isn't that a glimpse of his glory and what he can do in creation? But it's nothing compared to what all his glory is about. And so um, we see that uh, it's the presence of God. uh, In the Old Testament, it's the Shekinah glory. The presence of God amongst them. The glory of God was in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve even walked and talked with Him. That glory, can you imagine what they experienced? But we will experience even more when we are glorious people. They were not glorious at that time. They were innocent before sin. Then when sin happened, they were sinners in the need of God. Couldn't recognize His glory like they had. But the glory was in the garden and then later God, through Moses, and the people in the wilderness gave them a tabernacle and He showed His glory there. And it was a cloud by day and a fire by night. And then the temple was built. Uh, A a presence now was in the temple that was a more permanent place. Tabernacle, they moved around. It was a tent. And uh, there we think about that. The glory was in the tabernacle. The glory is in the temple. Then the temple came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And you get the greatest glimpse of glory there. You look in John 1.14. And here's John, the apostle, Mentions this glory, and the Word became flesh. The Word is Christ. He became incarnated and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent, or he tabernacled among us. That brings the Old Testament alive now to us, doesn't it? Now the tabernacle, the temple, really is in Him. He pitched his tent among us, right here with with these sinful people. He pitches his tent. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full full of grace and truth. Isn't that incredible? So John saw that. He saw Him walk amongst them and saw even that better glimpse at the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory is the Shekinah. And we look at Isaiah 42, verse 8. And... um, Actually, starting in verse chapter forty, all the way through the rest of the book, we see great glory of God, judgment of God. You see so much in the first thirty-nine chapters. That was that's what we've been dealing with on Tuesday nights. And uh, but yet, in the midst of that, we see glimpses of God's glory. From forty on, He starts showing how awesome He really is. Now, in Isaiah forty-two, verse eight, He says, "I am the Lord." That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. It is only He and He alone who people worship. Not the God of the Muslims. Not the God of the gods, the millions of gods of the Hindus, and on and on and on, and the gods of the new age, which is you, I am God, says I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Idolatry. Of course, that's from Isaiah, and he's just come off of 39 chapters of judging them. One of the reasons, because of their idolatry. And we can see idolatry in our world today in our own selves. We have our idols, and we are to be killing those idols Bob, I think you even had a website or something that you dealt with so often uh, on Facebook even at one time. What what was it called? Exposing our idols. Exposing our idols. Do you like that? We need to, for ourselves, we need to expose our idols because we we have them. That's what we need to die to. them. Uh, this is dealing with uh in, in our James passage about the Lord Jesus Christ who is glorious, dealing with his incarnation, it's dealing with his deity. He became human but he's also God. And he's glorious. Now, what he did, he put on display his impartiality. Because who did he come to? Did he come to the kings and the queens and the judges, the princes? Did he come to a palace? We know how he came. He came in the most humble way. Of course, he's born in the, you know, we think of the manger, stable, right? Very humbly. And he was raised in a very humble way. In a very humble town called Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? People said. He ministered in Galilee and Samaria even. Boy, you know what? I'm beginning to think he is a very impartial who he came to.
1: He
0: is the embodiment of impartiality. We say God is light. He also is impartiality. For the world knows no impartiality. They're very partial. (laughs) But he is the glorious one who is impartial. That's incredible to think. Matter of fact, this attribute is so amazing. I thought about it this week. I, I don't usually think about the attribute of God being the impartiality. So that's one thing to be focusing on here just for this moment. He's so utterly, absolutely, totally impartial not a little partiality there whatsoever, that someday when you and I go to the very presence of God, we realize we look at Him and we're going to realize who am I. But this is the ultimate. When we go to Him and we realize we are nothing and then we too will be glorified, that's staggering. How impartial can you get God to bring me into your kingdom and then make me like your son? He's not going to make me to be Jesus Christ or to be God, but to have a glorified body, never to sin again, and everything will be holy and perfect and righteous and peace. What an amazing thing. I don't deserve that at all. And I think that's pretty impartial of God to do that to me because I'm really a nobody. Whatever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we haven't done, in the fullness of grace of salvation, He will make us, everyone, to be exactly like Him. You can say, Dennis, where in the world are you getting that from? Well, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, I want to be careful when I talk about that, but at the same time, I don't want to eliminate it. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us and that we would be called children of God, and such we are, for this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Here we go, verse 2. Beloved, John loves to use that word, Beloved, brethren, now we are children of God. Right now, in this moment. As you said here, you are. And it has not appeared as yet, what we will be. We know when He appears, when he comes back, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is glorified. We can't see that glorification of him right now. Our humanness, our bodies that we are in, that's defiled still by sin, the wretches that these bodies are, cannot see physically. We can see Him spiritually, but physically we cannot. But one day we will. And not only that, but we'll be like Him with that glorified body. Whatever He did walking through walls and what have you, you know, I mean, it, uh, it goes way beyond that. And if you have that hope, you purify yourself. Do you have that hope? A Christian has that hope. I can tell you that. A Christian always has that hope. So we should exalt the supreme glory of Jesus Christ We're just unworthy servants, aren't we? There's really nothing good about us in and of ourselves. But, as we are unworthy servants, look what Christ
1: makes us.
0: Even right now. As we focus on the glory of Christ Jesus, as James does that right here, believe me, he actually walked, and talked with Jesus here on earth because he was a half-brother of him. Remember that? (laughs) Yeah. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Jude was too. They were around him all the time. And do you think that he called him glorious when they were kids?
1: <laughs> Matter
0: of fact, they didn't even believe in Jesus while he did his ministry here. It wasn't until after the resurrection. Resurrection that that happened here to James, that he became a believer. Now he focuses on the glory of Christ. Can you imagine knowing Jesus and all of a sudden you realize the great glory? This is God that was among us. The God, the creator of the universe, was living right here with me. Now, we weren't there, but yet we experienced his salvation. We look at the cross, don't we? And that's the proper place. That we should have him in our hearts, this glorious, beautiful, the excellent Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we get a description of believers. We did. We get a description of Jesus, and now we see, as as we talked about, do you see his sovereignty as he's called glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Whenever we use him uh, like partiality, and he's a impartial God. We've just taken his sovereignty away. Do you see that? Because he's the one who discerns. And he's the one who is no respecter of persons. He's impartial. He's sovereign. Don't take that sovereignty away from him. By the way, you can't. But in our own minds, our own thoughts, even though we've never met it, that's what we're doing. We're taking God's sovereignty when we play favorites. Okay, partiality makes one the judge in place of Christ. Now, it's almost like sovereignty of the king, now you have the judge here. Uh, The command here is, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Personal favoritism, what what is that? What's the word that James used in, in the literal Greek? It means to raise the face of one. It means to elevate a person. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we are to, matter of fact, as Christians, we are to do that with each brother and sister. We are to elevate them, you know, in Christ, right? Uh, have them placed above ourselves. That's quite a command in itself, isn't it? But it later became known to exalt one in a very superficial, outward way because of social status, because of money, because of possessions, appearance. To judge a man is based on outward appearance in this sense is what he's talking about. It's actually usurping the place of Jesus Christ in His glory as judge of all the earth. So we take His judgment away whenever we do that. Um, Now, we want to say what He's not saying here. He's not saying that, okay, if you're poor... You're you're of God and you're righteous. And if you're rich, you're not. We know better than that. And He's making a generality here, uh, so we don't come to that conclusion. He's not saying categorically, here's one group they're bad, and categorically this group over here is good. You know, we know that, right? But somebody could take this home and say, Dennis said, if you're rich, you're not going to heaven. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, he said that. And
0: and and we know we 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 use wisdom when we we interpret, and we use the rest of Scripture. Some men are very godly that are rich, and some men are very ungodly who are poor. James' point is that any judgment based upon an outward factor alone, though, are wrong judgments. Anytime we've made a judgment based upon just the outward appearance, it's wrong. Um, God judges the heart our problem is, is that we cannot discern the heart. We think we can know and go into somebody's heart, but we don't always know that. Now, by their actions, and we saw last week and previous weeks, uh, what one says is coming out of the heart, and so therefore they expose themselves. And we can make discernments on that and go, wow, they just said something that was really blaspheming Christ, and yet they call themselves a Christian. Well, we use discernment on that, don't we? We're not saying throw away all of our discernment and wisdom, but here, the, there's a point of outward factors, and what we judge because of that. Only God judges the heart, and we never want to usurp the judge of judges. Now, in in two four, he says that when we make final distinctions among people based on outward factors, we set uh, ourselves up as judges with evil motives. That's what it says in verse four of our of our text. So that's that's the idea. That's where we're getting from as far as the judges. We don't see the hearts of men. <coughs> God does, so we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, and there was to be a choice of one to be a king. And who was the first king of Israel? Actually, it was Saul, wasn't it? Because he had the looks of a king that's the way they're supposed to be and so therefore we'll choose him because he looks like the right kind and you know he's tall and he's manly he's strong and he's got good looks first samuel 16:7 says but the lord said to samuel do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because i have rejected him for god sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? And But that's the way that God thinks. And He is always going to look at it correctly and perfectly. So, that's uh, the idea of personal favoritism. This is really good tea. There's new tea out there. It's not the strawberry tea, and it's not the peach tea. Debbie, what was that other tea? Pear. Pear tea? Is that what that is? Mm. Now, I know everybody's going to be going out there looking at that. There goes the message. Sorry about that. I am really thirsty. And this really tastes really good right now. And it's even lukewarm. And later it'll be cool and I'll have some iced tea or something. But Very good. Okay. Now, that breaks us up to go into the next verse, which is really an illustration. He sets forth, you could outline it like this. Here's the principle. We just set it forth. We know that. Now, here's the illustration. I'm going to draw you a picture. And, of course, what what I could have done today, if I'd really been thinking, but I never think of until about the time that I'm up here. I think, boy, I could have sent Zach some pictures of this man coming into the synagogue with all of these rings on and the beautiful clothes and then the poor man, right? And so we could have drawn that up and I'm sure Zach probably could have found something and he would would even be looking that up right now if we had our internet. (laughs) <laughs> but for some reason, the Internet doesn't want to work anymore. It hasn't for months. But And he would find that and boom, bring it up. We're going to try to get that going again. But you don't really need pictures visually to see this. But it helps, doesn't it? That's what he does. Gene just draws up a picture here. Made the principle. The statement is something that they could all identify. Nobody would be saying, oh, I disagree.
1: You know?
0: <laughs> um but he says, here's what it is. This is a hypothetical scenario, but it's possible it was happening in their congregations. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and he pays special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? You see, that we just kind of talked about that, haven't we? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised for those who love it? We'll get to that in a moment. But there's the illustration. You have these two guys, right? Two men coming to the church. or coming to a gathering. The word there is, uh, I have assembly into your assembly. Uh, some of you might have synagogue. Some of you might have gathering. And they're all correct. Uh, the word is sunagoge it means to gather with to gather together um that's what the jews did they had a, uh, a synagogues that they would meet on the sabbath they had the temple but if you were a long way away you didn't go to the temple you went to the synagogue and uh that came as a result of somewhere around the 400s bc um when the, when the people uh, came back and they built the temple they, they had actually had gatherings when they came together uh, in babylon and they kind of kept that thing going uh synagogues that uh, were a place to come to worship uh, so they would come and of course there are really good seats in a place and then there are other places that are not so good and the poor man is actually told to stand out of the way or to, to sit on the floor You know, and at least a the man there could at least said, hey listen I don't have the greatest seat but you can sit in my seat here but you have the rich man who gets the best seat that's, that's possible there. He's given the privilege of that because of his wealth. Because of the riches that he has. And he shows that. He, he wears these things because it shows off who he is. You say, well, how do you know that? People can dress nice and really not have a lot of money. Well, back in those <laughs> days when they wore a ring, and by the way, it could be in the plural. We're, we're talking about rings maybe. Uh, on every ring of the finger except the middle finger. And so therefore, that was showing how wealthy they really were. Gold rings? Yeah, I guess so. And so in this uh, particular setting, that's what would be the, the poor man. He's despised because obviously we can see he's not a man of any kind of worth. That's the kind of treatment that he get, gets. And what does James say? That is evil. I mean, that That is wicked. That's evil. That's a popular vernacular vocabulary today. I hear young people using the word, that's evil. <laughs> uh, I mean, It sounds like doubly sinful or something, doesn't it? Um, anyway, to make distinctions like that are so petty. By focusing our attention on the glorious Lord Jesus that we've already seen in verse 1, James addresses this problem of favoritism. And he says... I'll show you how petty this is. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and how beautiful and how glorious that He is. And then you have this rich and poor thing going on. And you have these distinctions. And even the most powerfully rich men on earth are nothing compared to the glory of God. They really are nothing. Compared to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, when we exalt men on account of their wealth or their power or their status, what we're doing is—what are we doing? We're robbing the glory from Jesus Christ, who sovereignly gives us everything that we are and have. So there's nothing wrong with having good things, and there's nothing wrong with somebody even having a lot of money, because I got a feeling really we all have that if we compare it to the rest of the world. It's right, but uh, maybe, maybe this country. Maybe you were considered to be a middle class. By the way, uh, in the Bible times here, they had no middle class. You were either rich or you were poor. Most of the Christians were, guess what? Poor. Now here comes a rich man in. they are they thinking? Oh, wow. If we could get this guy to be a member, look at how what we could do with the synagogue. You know, we could really build it. I mean, this could really be something, right? You know, Maybe they have ulterior Motives, what have you? But uh, how petty it, it really is when we think of a great God of who He is. Do so, you know what He gives us everything that that we have? Uh, look in First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? Or in the sense of saying, hey, it's almost like, hey, I did this. Look what I got. Look what I did. This is me. Yeah, look at me. And he says, so you think you're superior? There's nobody that's superior. you you got it all from God. He sovereignly gives you the things that you have. Do you know that everything that you have, you can say, ah, God would... He's not concerned about that. He could care less about that. God gave you that. He gave you the the way to earn it and, and buy it. James' point is that any judgments based on outward factors are wrong judgments. Because they can't discern the heart. Only God judges the heart. If a Judge in a court of law was affected by clothing that the defendant wore? Would he be violating justice? Because of his outward look, if a judge, judge... And you know what? It may happen. (laughs) Because let's move on. Let's get to the (laughs) next case. Or, get some money from the sign. You know, the injustice that happens in our nation, in the courts... We hear about that. But he's saying, you're taking away God's judgment as a judge when you make judges on people that you don't know what their hearts are about. Wow, James, stop! Stop, man, I'm getting beat up here. (laughs) He goes on. And he really humbles you when you get to this next section. Now, this is a great verse. Are you figuring out which verse I'm talking about? We've got through the illustration here, right? I think this is just awesome. Verse five. James has talked about this before, but he just assumes they already know it. But he says, "Listen, I think that's a good point." Charles Stanley says, "Listen," and you know what?
1: Listen, listen.
0: That's what he's famous for. Listen. What's this? <laughs> so that, you're ready, right? Okay. Behold. Yeah, right. Jesus uses that continually, doesn't he? Behold. Listen, and what does he call them? My beloved brethren. Call them brethren before and now he beloved brethren. Is he getting ready to blast them now? <laughs> he sets them up. Listen to this. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? How many here are really famous? How many here are really just loaded so much money you don't know what to do with? You know, how many of you here live in a palace? You know, you you go on and on and that kind of thing. And I I think if we compare ourselves to that, we go, well, yeah, we're kind of poor, in that sense. I think most of us say, hey, you don't know us, man. We are poor. But it's kind of an oxymoron. Actually, we're not. But in a lot of ways, we are. And really, down through the ages, most of the people in church have been poor, And especially back at that time, they were dirt poor. Um, God chooses the saved not because of any kind of merit or qualifications. What you look like, how much money you have, right? I think everybody would identify with that. I would hope, right? His choice of you was based upon His purpose. I think we know that. Yeah, it was His purpose. Is God's purpose ever... Wrong. Or are there things about God's purpose that he doesn't quite get? Oh, man, I missed out on that. (laughs) Then he's not in total control, is he? Not sovereign. James asks his readers, pay attention, listen, calls them beloved brethren, and he really expects an affirmative answer. I think uh, believers would say, yeah, that's kind of automatic. God did choose those who are saved apart from any merit or qualification. It wasn't anything that he foresees. Oh, there's Dennis. I didn't know he was going to turn out that way. Oh, huh. okay. Yeah, come on in.
1: Dennis, you're pretty cool after all.
0: You weren't that way for a while. What's the matter with you? What's, it, what's going on? I can't know. He didn't foresee that I, I would even believe in him because it goes back beyond that for the foundation of the world. His salvation is solely depending upon something that originates outside of fallen man. Because fallen man is dead. So on Facebook this week. That was pretty good. I even put it on mine for a while. And I go, "Ah, maybe I better take it off. Somebody probably gets irritated by it or something. There's a man who's a skeleton in in a coffin.
1: Did you see that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the, this man is like saying, you know, and I don't have the exact words that was there, but he was saying, "Now I think I'll make my decision to choose Jesus."
1: <laughs> you know, he's dead,
0: right? Ephesians two says, "You're dead in your trespasses and sins." You're a dead man. You can't, you can't do that in, in that situation. So, so can a skeleton come up and say, "I think I'll, I'll choose Christ now." Uh, obviously, he cannot do that. He, he's dead, and that's the way that we all are. It's, it's by His grace that we're saved it's by his grace that we believe we do believe that never negates that fact we must believe we are called to believe it's the lifeline that he throws out to us that we can believe in him he starts it because we can't even you know go for it we can't respond because we're dead it's his grace and purpose and we look at romans chapter 9 verse 11 And this is dealing with the sovereignty of God. This is the text that people get bothered with and they would rather skip it. But I rather like it. <laughs> I, I, I love it because it's, it tells us who God is. For though the twins were not yet born, Isaac, Ishmael, and had not done anything good or bad. They, they hadn't even done anything. They weren't even born so that God's purpose according to what? His choice would stand. Not because it works. Not because you'd do something good. Not because you would even believe, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That is a hard text. They have books out about the hard sayings of God. That's a hard saying. Paul had some rather hard sayings. Jesus said some really hard sayings. Jesus was radical. You ever thought of that? He was very radical. He shook the stage of this whole earth. He came here. He's still shaking it. And then he talks about the sovereign God. I think that's just amazing, right? He's a potter. We are the clay. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse sixteen. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy for this purpose. I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That was Pharaoh. He had mercy on whom he desires, He hardens whom he desires. He hardened Pharaoh, gave mercy to Moses and the people. What a picture there. So when we start thinking about where we came from and who we are, and we look at what where Christ has put us, why would we ever favor somebody over another because of their outward appearance. And the great verse that we always go to on this occasion is <laughs> it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's so beautiful. Can't help but think about it. And every commentary that I went to always went to this particular section. So it must be a good one to work with. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, are you considered to be among the philosophers, the wise of the world? According to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's, that's the way it's seen to the outward world, the foolish people. And today, I didn't even really see that. People uh, really think Christians are foolish. And the things that they're doing are incredible. If you're the latest one, a, a kid scores a touchdown in a football game, puts his finger up like that, which is, you know, it's saying glory to God. He's the one that does You know, I thank the Lord, you know. And... They got penalized, and the referee came up to him and says, you do that again, I'll I'll kick you out of the game. Well, the, the next week, I think it was, he scored another touchdown. He didn't hesitate. Referee is there, same referee, kicked him out of the game. And I'm not so sure if he's kicked out for the season, for the playoffs and everything. Uh, He's not even saying anything. All he's doing is, you know, that is saying something. But come on, you know, and you see it all the time. But that's where we've come in this nation. And we are considered to be the outcasts to the government, the schools. And you know, all the things that are happening. That was a school event. But he says he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he's using these words because they think they're strong. Government thinks they're strong. Not against government per se. God gives us that. But I'm talking about the the leaders and the, the, the pomp and the circumstance, all the things that goes with that. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. The ones that think they're really something and they have the wisdom. He's chosen the foolishness things, like the gospel, to overwhelm the wise of the world. Right? You see the play on words and how he uses that. So he uh, has done this. Uh, We know in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. They recognize their sins, but... Also it can the uh, poor people of the world can identify with that they are on they can be on the same level as anybody if if they belong to christ they they realize how short life is, and that there is a need for eternal life the you know, the rich young ruler did not see that did he did not see it at all and uh he couldn't give up what was most important to him he couldn't give up his idol. It's those who are poor materially who are also often poor in spirit. They recognize needs. So when God sent His Son, He chose a poor Jewish maiden to be born in her womb, Mary. She wrote the Magnificat. And she exalted the Lord. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and He exalted those who were humble He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. That's a generalization. Like I say, we have to be very careful. But, But you can see God, for the most part, doesn't need the great wisdom and the great money and possessions that the world has because most of the people that He brings into His eternal kingdom are ones who are needy. They need Him. So by choosing those whom the world rejects and despises, God magnifies the riches of His grace, doesn't He? So whenever He uses somebody that seems like nothing and brings them into the kingdom and they will be something, that's a sovereign, gracious choice. God choice. He makes them heirs of the kingdom. James 1, five says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask a God who gives all generously without approach and will be given to him. Um, we will, we have wisdom that comes from God. We now can take an attribute like that, and this partiality, and ignore the external factors. We we have wisdom now to um, make decisions that um, that Christ wants us to make. So we don't want to usurp the role that belongs to God alone. He makes the sovereign choices. He chose you for salvation, and that will humble you, won't it? So, but He didn't wasn't it wasn't partiality. He didn't choose you just because you came from a poor family. But if we do favoritism, we usurp the role that belongs to God alone. He makes sovereign choices. Part two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) partiality
0: aligns you with God's enemies whoa wow if you are showing partiality you are aligning with the enemy Um, making distinctions outward factors the church has dishonored the poor man he asked two rhetorical questions here based on current circumstances there and um, we see that um he says, But you have dis- dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? That's one of the questions. These are the same people, these rich people, that actually drag some of them into court. The poor, the, the orphans, the widows, they're brought into to court and there's no justice done. Isaiah mentions that constantly. And it happened during the time of Christ. And uh, the poor gets poorer. And the rich get richer. That's the way that principle works when man is, is ruling. Um or the rich man will pay pitiful wages to the poor man. Actually hardly allows that man to feed his family. He just barely gets by. Can you identify with that?
1: <laughs> uh
0: if a creditor met a debtor on the street at that time and he owes him money, he could seize him by the neck of his, of his throat, he could throttle him there and literally drag him to the law courts. And he didn't have a chance in the law courts because he didn't have the money to pay him. And all of a sudden, he's guilty. There's no compassion. There's no understanding on the part of the wealthy towards the poor. This same thing goes on in our country all the time, doesn't it? And in even our own hearts, we can we can have that that tendency. The, the prophets often confronted oppressing the poor. Like I said, we could turn to the Isaiah passages, we've been to that, but uh, we can look at kings, we can look at the law, we can see how God is concerned for the poor, often he uses orphans, widows, Uh, I've got Deuteronomy down here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we'll see it all throughout the prophets, Um, because of the lack of time I'm not going to turn to those, but Uh, they show that God really is concerned about the poor. And people would say, yeah, why isn't he doing something about it? Ultimately, the answer is, like everything else, it's because of the sin of mankind. Look what man does. If God allows man to do what he does, this is what happens. And so it will be until he comes back. He says, we will always have the poor until eternity. Eternity, we will be the absolute rich of all, and we are rich in faith. Um, we are actually aligning ourselves with God's enemies if we play favorites.
1: Boy, James,
0: John Calvin says he compares it to honoring your executioners and injuring your own friends. God's enemies also blaspheme in the name of Christ, and this is the second and the last question that he asked them. Uh, verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name for which you've been called? These same people who are, are the rich that, that you're favoring, you know, that kind of people, you know, they're the ones not only taking you to court, but they blaspheme the name of Christ. We don't exactly know what they're doing. It's a rhetorical question, but he says, you've been called upon. Again, he, he says that. It's, it's the name of God that you've been called to. And he says, look at this. He says, these are the people who blaspheme God. Who knows what you know? They take the name of Christ and 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 they do awful things with His <laughs> name. Uh, it, and it could be you know at that time uh, practically it referred to the practice of a a, um, a wife taking a husband's name. We take the name of Christ, don't we? We are married to Him in that sense, right? We um, it, it's like the child taking the name of a father. We take that name. So we're under that name. But they blaspheme the name. We're called to His name. Now who knows, it could have been Gentiles mocking the Christian's God or the Jews that uh, were criticizing the Christian claims about Jesus and they were the, the wealthy ones. It may refer to unbelievers making just fun of Christian morality. My goodness, when you even talk something about so basic now as what a family is... And what marriage is, you get laughed out of the place. Matter of fact, our politicians dare even bring anything out about it. And, and you can you can bet in this race that we're having, even the conservative guys probably are not going to say anything about it at all. They're not calling what it really is. Jane's point is that showing partiality to the rich is because it's it's aligning oneself with those who despise God. Those are generalizations, but uh, why court the favor of those who oppose God, right? We don't have the omniscience of the Lord to see the heart of a man, but when we become new creatures in Christ, we have a new capacity to love one another in a biblical way. Just as Christ has loved us. What kind of love did it take? Behold, what manner of love is this that He would bring me into the kingdom, right? And so he says, now, I did that to you, now you do it to them. Even when they don't deserve it or they don't have the outward aspect, you'll never get anything in return for it. That's the point James is making. If we call ourselves Christians, then we must love like Christians. Remember the one I started out with, the question, are we spiritual snobs? (laughs) I put myself in this. I find myself guilty in this because I can make judgments on people that I have no idea. Outside of our present circle of friends, have we attempted to include in our lives people who are different from us? Have we done that recently? If not, we're guilty. But because of Christ and we look at His glory, don't we want to be able to touch others, even when they're not like us? Tough passages. Thank you, Lord. I'm guilty. Help me. Pray. Father, thank you. The book of James is rather demanding, but we know in the person of Christ, you would set us free to be able to do the things that we wouldn't want to do, couldn't do before, but now we can. It's an ongoing life that we live. And we know that as we see the word clearer, we see more of the things that really are what Christ is about, what God is about. Help us with this attribute of God and help it be reflected in our lives even more. In the mighty, sovereign name, of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.